All right, we are uh, going to be looking at John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're beginning a, a short series this week that I've titled Touchstones of Gospel Culture. Remember, gospel culture is the shared experience of God's grace by undeserving sinners. The shared experience of God's grace by undeserving sinners. Gospel culture is formed in a church as gospel doctrine, the message of God's grace for undeserving sinners, is taken to heart. By God's grace, this has been an area of relative strength for our church. The, the testimony consistently over the years that, that people have given to me is that they've never experienced the warmth of what is properly considered gospel culture. They've never considered the warmth of what can be called the fellowship that is enjoyed here quite as richly as they have, uh, more richly here than they have anywhere else. So by God's grace, this is a, an area of, of relative strength for us, and we can never take it for granted, because if we do, it will surely be lost. But you could say that what we are blessed with here is a, a Letchworth experience of gospel culture, right? Anybody been to Letchworth? I mean, come on. We live in western New York. We've been to Letchworth. If not, you need to get there. Letchworth, of course, the Grand Canyon of the East. Beautiful, stunning, especially in the fall. Incredible. But if you've never been to the Grand Canyon, you don't realize just how much more beautiful it really is. Right? The, the Grand Canyon of the East is beautiful, but the actual Grand Canyon, even more so. This, the same is true with, with gospel culture. By God's grace, we enjoy a Letchworth experience of gospel culture here at Grace. But to, to move from from a Letchworth experience of gospel culture to a Grand Canyon experience of gospel culture, which is the vision that the Bible holds out to us, then the truth of the gospel, gospel doctrine, must be increasingly being taken to heart by each and every one of us. The truth of the gospel must make that, you know, metaphorical 18-inch journey from head to heart, but we all know it's a journey that often feels just as long and just as hard as the 2,228-mile actual journey between Letchworth 
and the Grand Canyon. And this is so important. Gospel culture is not a, you know, kind of a beneficial byproduct. It is so crucial. Jesus prayed for this kind of culture in his church. As we, as we talk about gospel culture at Grace Church, we're talking about something that, that Jesus prayed that every church would experience. It's absolutely central to our testimony in the world. That there's a, a culture here, a, a way of living together, a way of being, a, a love for one another that is itself the fruit of love for Jesus, that is itself the result of his love for us, that is a testimony to the world. Like, as we live out a gospel culture, Jesus prayed that in so doing, the world would know. Like, it would be a testimony to the truth of who Jesus is. This matters. It's not just a beneficial add-on to our church life. So I've been thinking a lot, you know, lately about what the Bible has to say about that journey from head to heart, that, that journey from Letchworth to the Grand Canyon when it comes to our gospel culture. And, and not just the process, and, and not just the destination, and not just what it looks like for individual Christians to make that journey, but actually what are the indicators that that journey is being made in our life together. So I've titled the series Touchstones of Gospel Culture. A touchstone is a standard, it's a, it's a criterion by which, by which something is judged or recognized. Like it's an indicator. A touchstone is an indicator that what you're looking for is actually there. So touchstones of gospel culture. What does the Bible say should be present among a people as they're taking the gospel to heart and living it out? What are, the, what are the high level indicators? What are the essential biblical beliefs and behaviors? What are the touchstones of gospel culture? Because as those touchstones are cultivated and, and celebrated in our life together, gospel culture will grow. We'll continue by God's grace to move from Letchworth to the Grand Canyon in our experience of gospel culture here at Grace. So we're going to turn to the first touchstone, but before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. Lord, from this portion of your word, would you teach us? Holy Spirit, would you, would you convict us of sin and give us that great gift of repentance that we're going to talk about this morning, that we might abide more and more deeply in the reality of who you are and your love for us in Jesus. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. All right, so first touchstone of gospel culture, wholehearted love for Jesus. Wholehearted love for Jesus. We're in John chapter 15. We're at the heart of what's known as the, the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse of Jesus. It's the night before his crucifixion. Jesus has had his last supper with the disciples, and then he washed the feet of his disciples. In John chapter 13, Judas left to betray Jesus. In, in John 14, 15, 16, Jesus is giving some additional, you know, kind of final teaching to his friends, to his disciples, these ones whom he loves, and then he prays for them in chapter 17. In the first 11 verses of John 15, we learn a few things. First of all, we learn that the Christian life is fundamentally a call to abide in Jesus. The Christian life is fundamentally a call to abide in Jesus. 
By grace, through faith in Jesus, we are united to him. We are united to him. He is the vine. We are the branches. And we are called to bear fruit as we abide in him. Keyword, bear. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So at the base, the fundamental reality of the Christian life is a call to abide in Jesus for all of life. Secondly, we learn that the fruit of abiding in Jesus is greater love for him and greater joy in him. What is the fruit of an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ? It's greater love for him, increasingly wholehearted devotion to him, love for Jesus in all of life. And as we live that way, actually greater joy in him as he gives us his joy to the full. Christian life is a life of love for Jesus and joy in Jesus. And finally, we learn that just as a branch must be regularly pruned in order to bear fruit, so too Christians must regularly repent in order to bear greater fruit for Jesus. Now, if, if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here, and I hope that you'll begin to see that there's no life apart from the vine. That this imagery that we're talking about is for you. That there is, there's no life apart from Jesus. There's no ultimate meaning, no lasting fulfillment, no real joy apart from a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will hear that everything that's said about the Christian life this morning is actually, it's an invitation to you to put your trust in Jesus Christ and journey with us from Lutchworth to the Grand Canyon, to spend a little bit of time with us and you realize how far away we are, but to actually journey with us as we seek to grow more and more in love with Jesus and experiencing more and more of his joy in our lives. If you are a Christian, for those of us who are, I hope we'll recognize our tendency to either try to produce fruit in our lives by performing for God, or pretend that we have fruit in order to save face with others. Performing, pretending. And the ways in which that way of approaching a relationship with Jesus actually kills gospel culture and, and diminishes, if not completely eliminates, our testimony in the world concerning the reality of who Jesus Christ is. The stakes of not abiding in Christ really are that high. And I hope that in the end, we'll leave with a hunger not only to enjoy the fruit of abiding in Jesus more fully in our own lives, but to actually look for, long for, work toward the enjoyment of that fruit in our life together as we move by God's grace from Letchworth to the Grand Canyon in our experience of gospel culture. So a lot of ground to cover. Not a lot of time to do it in. I acknowledge that. But first, the call to abide in Jesus. Let's go there. The call to abide in Jesus. The Christian life is fundamentally a call to abide in Jesus Christ. It's all over this passage. Let's just work our way back through it. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Verses 7 and 8, 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As we abide in him, the kind of things that we ask for are the kind of things that are connected with bearing fruit for him, for the glory of God. Jesus says, abide in me and the things that you ask for, my Father will be pleased to give you because you're asking for things that have to do with love for me and joy in me. Verse 9. Jesus says in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This call over and over again. Jesus, again, Jesus is with his disciples. It's near the end of his life. He's wanting to reinforce and drive home the things that he's been teaching them throughout the, his ministry on earth. Things that they, just like us, are very slow to get. And he's driving home here, abide. Abide in me. Abide in my love. Abide in me. What does it mean to abide? Well, first I want to say this. For a Christian, abiding in Christ does not mean hold on for dear life lest I be cast out. It's not what it means. That would be a misreading of this text. We know from verse 3 and how verse 3 connects with something that Jesus, you know, it's, 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 John chapter 13, but keep in mind, it's the same talk he's having with his, his disciples. So something that he had just said previously in John 13, he reinforces here. Let, let me look at the passage here in verse uh, 3 of chapter 15. Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, what is this imagery of, of cleanliness? Well, back in John chapter 13, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. He took the basin and the towel. He went around the room. He washed their feet. He comes to Peter, and Peter says, no way, man. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, if, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part of me, no part in me. And, and, and then Peter says, well, then <laughs> wash me entirely. Wash all of me. And, and John is, and, you know, Peter's told by Jesus, you're already clean. You're already forgiven. All you need is to have your feet washed. It's this image, this picture. Using basin and towel imagery there, using vine and branches here, of saying that you are connected to me. You do have a vital relationship with me. We, you are united to me by faith. You're clean. You're forgiven. But you still need to have, John chapter 13, your feet washed. John chapter 15, the branch pruned but you're mine you will bear fruit jesus says to his own those who are not clean you know jesus said this john back in john chapter 13 those who are not of me are not clean those who are not in vital relationship with me will be cast aside he's referring back in john chapter 13 to judas and I think what we see here in the imagery in John chapter 15 is like what John says in his first epistle in 1 John concerning those who went out from us and so proved themselves to not be of us. He's talking about people who seem to have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, just like Judas seemed to have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. But in the end, it was proven to be that Judas did not have a saving relationship with Jesus. He was not actually abiding in the vine. He did not actually have a living connection to the vine. 
And in the end, the evidence or lack thereof of fruit in Judas's life proved that he was actually never one who was connected to Jesus in the first place. That's the warning in this passage. It's not a warning to Christians saying that if you, if you don't do a good enough job bearing fruit in your life, if you don't work hard enough, then you will, be, you will lose your salvation. That's not what Jesus is teaching. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's more of a promise. If you abide in me, as you abide in me, you will bear fruit. So to abide in Jesus is not to hold on for dear life lest we be cast away. To abide in Jesus is to rest in the reality that will always be his. The one who has put their trust in Jesus Christ is united to Christ. The evidence of that union with Christ is fruit that is born over time. And so it's right to be looking for that fruit, longing for that fruit, asking for other people in your life to be able to speak into your life and say, man, I'm not seeing any actually fruit in your life. That's always something to be looking for, but it's always something that's born in us through our relationship with Jesus Christ, not something that we produce apart from him. In the same way that a branch disconnected from the vine is never going to produce fruit, so too a person who claims to be in Christ and is not connected to the vine will never produce fruit. But in the same way that a branch that is connected to a healthy vine will produce fruit, so too the Christian that is united to Christ by faith will produce fruit, fruit that will last. So to abide in the love of Jesus is to know it. It's to experience it. It's to marinate in it. This is what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20 when he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All of his living, all of his doing, all of his, you know, desiring is coming out of the fundamental wellspring of the love of Jesus Christ for him. He prays this way for us. Paul prays that we will know more of the love of Jesus Christ in our lives, the breadth and length and height and depth of his love that surpasses knowledge. That's Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19. That means, to use a different image, that to abide in the love of Jesus is like opening up the vents when winter comes. This is an image that uh, Dane Ortland uses in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Winter's coming. It is, you know, western New York. And when the furnace kicks on in your home, there's all kinds of heat that's ready to be distributed throughout the house. But if you don't open the vents, you're not going to feel the warmth. The heat's there. The furnace is running. It's, it's like ready to be experienced. And yet if the, if the vents aren't open, you don't benefit. You don't feel the warmth. The same is true with our hearts. To abide in Jesus' love is to open up the vents of our hearts so that the warmth of his love, the reality of his love for his own would not be something that is maybe we've read about it, but it's something that we're actually experiencing in our lives. Abide in Jesus' love. We were created to love Jesus. All right, so second point, the fruit of abiding in Jesus. If there's this invitation, this call to abide in Jesus, there's this fruit that Jesus tells us will be born. The fruit of abiding in Jesus is greater love for him and greater joy in him. 
Greater love for him and greater love in him. Love for Jesus. Now, last week we talked about the, the, first great, the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We talked about wholeheartedness. The idea that all of our thinking, all of our feeling, all of our willing is to be devoted to God. That when God comes and saves a person, he saves all of the person. Such that all of life is to be lived for God. Now, this morning, I'm talking about wholehearted love for Jesus. Why, how do these two go together? How, how can we talk about wholehearted love for Jesus? How could Jesus say, like he does in John chapter 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. When Jesus had previously said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. Well, Jesus does emphasize the need to love him. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he says to his disciples and those in the crowd, whoever loves father and mother, son or daughter, more than me, Jesus says. Not more than God, of course, he's saying the same thing, but more than me, he says, it's not worthy of me. In John chapter 8, verse 42, he's talking to a bunch of Pharisees who claim to, who claim to know God. And he says to them, if God were your father, you would love me, Jesus says. So how do you know if someone loves God with all the heart? They love Jesus. They love Jesus with all the heart. We were created to love Jesus wholeheartedly. All our thinking, all our wanting, all our willing, our love for Jesus is the evidence of love for God. And as I said last week, that's the Bugatti on the open road, right? The, the $17.8 million sports car that was created to hug the hairpin turns in the Alps or to race down the Autobahn, not to have a mower pan slapped underneath and mow the front yard, which is like life apart from Christ. Like you were created to be that Bugatti on the open road. You were created to love Jesus with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your thinking, all your willing, all your doing out of love for Jesus. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to, to abide. That's the fruit of abiding in Jesus, loving Jesus with all the heart. Now, love for Jesus leads to joy in Jesus. And Jesus says, I want you to know my joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So what Jesus is saying that as you live this life of wholehearted love for me, which is what you were created to do, you will experience more and more of my joy in you. These two things go together. Now, come back to the Bugatti illustration for a moment. And I'm not a car person. I'm like, so not a gearhead. <laughs> Trust me. But the illustration works. Imagine, you know, the, the man or the woman driving the Bugatti out on the open road. They're in, they're in the Alps, the hairpin turns, they're on the Autobahn at 180 miles an hour, whatever the case may be. Would they be bored? Would they feel like, oh, this is such a drudgery. There's no joy in this. No, they would be, I mean, maybe a little bit scared, but they'd be having so much. This is joy. I, I'm, I'm driving a Bugatti on the Autobahn. This is awesome. There, there is joy. 
that ought to characterize the life of a Christian who's following the way of Jesus. You're doing what you were designed to do. There's no greater joy than that. And Jesus is saying, I want you to have that joy. I'm telling you these things so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be full. We don't long enough for joy as Christians. And when we do long for it, we think it's found somewhere other than what it is, where it is. And especially we think it's achieved and not received. You'll never find joy if you're trying to earn it. We only find joy as we receive it. So, abiding in Jesus, is a call to abide in Jesus, to abide in his love, to, to abide in Jesus is to bear fruit that looks like love for him and joy in him. But we fall short of that every single day. And so there's this need for the same kind of pruning of a vine, of a branch connected to a vine that is needed for that branch to bear more fruit, God does that kind of pruning in our lives as well. Now we read this passage where Jesus talks about this in John chapter 15. As the, uh, let me find it. Every branch in me, verse 2, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, you know, we, we read that passage and we know that part of what's being referred to there is suffering. God uses suffering in our lives to, to refine our faith. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter. But, but don't forget the fact that God also uses a greater revelation of our need for his grace as we come face to face with the reality of his holiness and face to face with the depth of our sinfulness. God uses that reality to prune us to show us more of our need for him, to rest more and more in the reality of his love for us, accomplished and demonstrated for us at the cross. So that, let's look at this little, you have one of these little cards in your bulletin. Uh, yeah, let's look at the next one first. Perfect. All right. I've talked about the cross chart before. This is something that, man, it just, it helped me so much early in my uh, walk with the Lord um, in terms of understanding what it means to, to really live in light of the reality of God's grace and not seek to be like trying to earn his favor or pretend that I was further along in the faith than I really was, but just being able to be the, the, the real sinner that I am and yet loved by Jesus. And this, just, this picture helped me, and I want you to have it. You can throw it in your Bible. You can put it on your fridge, or if you don't like it, you can throw it away. But it just, you know, I think it's going to prove helpful for you. So looking at the, the, the one that's titled Minimizing the Cross. Again, this is adapted from the gospel-centered life. It's an excellent curriculum. Um, the, in, the, in the book, it doesn't look exactly like this. This is developed over the years as I've listened to different people talk about it. Just new ideas have been added to it. And I'm just copying what other people have done. So there's nothing original to me with this. I promise you that. Um, but minimizing the cross, this loveless, joyless Christianity. If you're a Christian, at some point, you came to the realization that you needed Jesus for your salvation. Your understanding of God's holiness and your understanding of your sinfulness resulted in a conviction that unless you put your trust in Jesus Christ and what his cross accomplished for you to bridge the gap, as it were, between God's holiness and your sinfulness, 
you, you came to a point of recognizing that that needed to happen for you, you put your trust in Jesus for your salvation. That's what the Bible refers to as conversion. Now, as you grow as a Christian, because the Spirit of God is in you, and the Word of God is before you, or hopefully it's before you, if not, it's still written on your heart, you have a sense of the fact that God is holy and you're not. The Spirit's using even that, all the more so when we open God's Word, to reveal more and more of the, the height of God's holiness and the depth of our sinfulness. The problem is, if over the course of the Christian life, the reality of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross doesn't continue to be real to you, such that as you see more of God's holiness and you see more of your sinfulness, it, it should lead to greater and greater rejoicing in what Jesus has accomplished for you. And when that doesn't, it usually means because it's because we have a false understanding of the finished work of Christ that's resulted in either an attempt at performing for God. If God's going to, if I'm going to enjoy what it means to be a Christian, I better pull myself up by my bootstraps and try all the harder so that God will bless me so I can experience some of this fruit. I've got to work at it. I've got to earn it. That's performing. And at the same time, we often fall into this pit of pretending. Church is a place where everybody, you know, we're just a bunch of shiny, happy people, right? If you haven't watched that documentary, it'll break your heart. But that's, that's the idea, that we need, to, we need to look like people that have it all together. Ed Welch, pretty sure it's Ed Welch, might be David Pollison. One of them talks about the fact that when we do that, it's like, you know, you're kind of taking the vine imagery and using a, a, a tree, fruit tree and fruit image. It says it's like we're trying to take plastic fruit, fruit that isn't real, and tape it to the tree that is our life so that we can trick other people into thinking that there's actually spiritual fruit there when there isn't. We've, we've been in churches like that, and when we're honest, we know that we are too often people like that, self-included. We can be so concerned about what other people think of us. We don't realize how much the gospel liberates us just to be the mess that we are. So, minimizing the cross. The result, little love and little joy. You see in the reference there next to little love, Luke 7, 47. It's a wonderful story in which, you know, the accounts told of Jesus being at a feast. Simon the Pharisee was throwing a meal for Jesus. It was out in the courtyard. That was common in that day. So everybody could see who... Who was the dignitary that was being, you know, brought over for dinner that night? And, and Jesus, Jesus was the one who was like, you know, the, the town was abuzz because who is this rabbi who's doing these amazing things? And so Simon is going to have Jesus over for dinner. And this is going to happen out in the courtyard. And in that culture, you could actually walk in <laughs> and see who was eating that day. You could stand around the outside of the courtyard and watch the meal. It was like, you know, theater. Wow, Simon's got Jesus over. This is amazing. That's what was happening in Luke chapter 7. And this woman came in who the, the text tells us had lived a sinful life, which is probably um, a way of saying that she was a prostitute. And she walked into the room. There's Jesus at the table with Simon. And Keep in mind, you know, they didn't sit at tables like we do at a chair with feet underneath the table. They low table, they reclined at it, right elbow on the table, feet away from the table, which helps you understand what a, 
what was happening when this woman came in and, and knelt at the feet of Jesus and began to weep and wash his feet with her tears and then let down her hair and, and dried his feet with her hair. Now Simon and all the other guests, you know, guests were like, what in the world? This is scandalous that this would be happening. Who is this? In fact, the text says they thought to themselves. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? And then he tells a parable. Well, well first he says, Simon, let's, let's do a little compare and contrast here. When I showed up, you didn't give me any water for my feet. You didn't give me any oil for my head. She actually washed my feet with her tears and dried them with my hair. And then he tells a parable. Simon, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither one of them had the money to pay him back. The money lender forgives the debt. Which of them will love the money lender more? And, and Simon says, I suppose the one who was forgiven the bigger debt. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus said, okay, yeah, but did you miss the fact that I said that neither one of them had the money to pay him back? They both were in debt beyond their ability to repay. You know, Simon saw himself as a, maybe a 50 denarii sinner. Probably not. Probably more like a 10 denarii sinner. Right? One denarii was one day's wage for a common laborer. The woman knew that she was in debt beyond her ability to repay. Jesus said to Simon, he who is forgiven little loves little. But he who is forgiven much loves much. That woman knew that she was forgiven much. And she loved Jesus much. When we fail to take the gospel to heart, when we minimize the cross by thinking that we somehow need to make up in our behavior for that gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness and who we are, or, or, or we think that we need to somehow pretend that we're not as sinful as we really are, we're actually, what that actually leads to is little love. Because we have little comprehension of the grace of God for us. We don't realize how much we've been forgiven. Little love, little joy. Instead, look at the other side. Repentance as a way of life. You know, in the same way that a in the same way that a branch has to continually be pruned, right? It's, just, it's not a one-off with a vine. You have, to keep, you have to keep pruning the branch. Well, in the same way, if we're going to bear fruit in Christ, we have to keep repenting. Repentance has to be a way of life. And this cross chart here gives you a little picture of that. There's a number of verses that are, that are written in there that I hope you'll take time to just kind of look these up and meditate on. What ought to be happening as we grow as Christians is two things become more and more real to us. First, that the cross is something, that, that's where God demonstrated his love for us. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Where, where does this love that we're called to live, this, this love for Jesus that is actually at the heart of what it means to be human, that, that is the Bugatti of our life, how do we get it? Oh, we love because he first loved us. 
And the more I see of my sin and his holiness, the more I see of his love for me and the more I'm enabled to love him in response. What does it look like to be growing in that understanding? It looks like a life of repentance. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And that's the the cycle that you see. Whenever we're confronted with the reality of our sin in in light of God's holiness, we are invited to this dance of repentance and faith that leads to love. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19 is where Paul is praying for us and we can make it our prayer that we would grow in the knowledge of Jesus' love for us, that we would come to know the height and the breadth and the depth and the length of his love for us, that we would not just know but experience this love that surpasses understanding. We're always repenting in light of that reality that we don't even begin to understand yet the depth of Jesus' love for us. We always repent recognizing that we don't have to wonder, is God going to forgive me this time? Because we remember John chapter 6, 37 that says, I will never, never cast out the one that has come to me. We always repent in light of the love that is ours in Jesus now and forevermore. And what does that lead to? The more we see how sinful we really are, the more we realize that we have been forgiven much, we love much. And with that greater and greater love for Jesus comes a greater and greater experience of his joy in us. This is so crucial when it comes to living out the Christian life. Just this image of what's real concerning what Jesus has done for us. I am so out of time, I gotta stop. I honestly, I wish there was so much, I wish we could keep going, just talk more about joy. I'll talk more about joy next week. Yeah, I'll talk more about joy next week. Just for a minute. Joy is, again, I'm not a gearhead. But I'm going to use an auto illustration again. Joy is the check engine light to your heart. Right? What the check engine light is to your car, joy is to your heart. When the check engine light is flashing, something's wrong with the engine. Maybe it's low on oil. When the the joy light is flashing, something's wrong with your heart. There's a lack of joy. And so when that, and I'll talk more about that next week, but, but when you find yourself lacking joy, the answer is always to return to Jesus and rest in his love. All right, we got to stop. God brings all kinds of circumstances into our lives to prune us. He exposes all kinds of sin in us, so we'll see how much we need him. It feels at times as though his pruning cannot be survived, that he's cutting too deep. And yet, at the same time as he prunes us, he's inviting us to love him more, to abide in his love. How can that be? How can it be that we who are the branches who deserve to be cut off actually are invited and enabled by his grace to bear fruit? It's because Jesus became a branch for us, a righteous branch, according to Isaiah. If there ever was a branch that bore fruit, it was this branch. Jesus lived a perfect life, and yet Scripture tells us that he was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus stayed under the knife. So whenever God's knife is operative in our lives, it's so that we will bear fruit and not ourselves be cut off. What kind of culture 
does that gospel truth create as it's taken to heart? First, a people who live for Jesus with all our heart and all of life because he gave his life with all his heart for us. People who live for Jesus with all our heart and all of life because he gave his life with all his heart for us. We fall short of that every single day. And so we are glad to practice a life of repentance. It's the only way. It's the only life is a life of repentance as the sinful people that we are. We're learning the gospel dance. The love of Christ breaks the cycle of pretending and performing that our sinful hearts would normally pursue. And we want what Jesus wants for us. We want it more than anything, the fullness of his joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do I pray that you take uh, the mess of the organization of my sermon and somehow use it, Lord, that which is, that which is gonna bear fruit in the hearts of your people. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Help us to love you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.